0: you to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Today, we want to continue our series, Defining 2020, which is an effort to really drill down on some of the issues that we're going to be facing this year as we elect a new president and grapple with lots of other things that are likely to happen. Uh, We also want to help you understand and navigate all of the terms we're likely to hear over and over between now and November about these issues. Today, we want to talk about education, and we've got someone with us who knows a ton about the subject. Elizabeth Moji is the dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan. Dean Moji, welcome back to Detroit Today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. It's great to be here.
0: Yes, and Happy New Year, of course. Thank you. Uh, Let's start with school choice and charter schools. Uh, That's a very controversial subject sometimes here in the state of Michigan, it's something that has been with us for almost 25 years now. And I feel like we've never quite gotten to the place where everybody really understands what's going on, but also where we can have the kind of conversation that we need to have about priorities and dynamics that either serve kids or don't serve kids uh, in that context. So let's start with defining a couple of, of terms here. What is school choice? What are charter schools and what are the difference between those two issues?
1: Well, great questions. School choice is really about providing options for parents and children to do just as the, as the phrase says, to choose the schools that serve their needs best. Um, the idea is that if people have choice, they can match a child's needs, with a particular teaching strategy, particular philosophies, uh, particular emphases or themes of schools. You've heard probably about magnet schools in in public education. Um, Those are schools where there might be a particular theme like a science magnet or an arts magnet. That's a kind of choice that's offered within traditional public school settings. In the last 20 or so years, The idea of choice has really blossomed and uh, more and more options are being sought. And of course, I should back up and say we've always had uh, choice, but it was typically what we would have called private or now we tend to refer to as independent school Mm -hmm. options. Mm -hmm. And those required children to either pay tuition or be a member, for example, of a church community. Um, so those, those were not the same kinds of choices that were available or that are now available through public charter schools. So a public charter is a school that is funded through public dollars. Um, there are a set of rules and regulations, too numerous for me to go into, but they basically have to be chartered by an agency that's approved by the state and those schools are actually supported through the same per pupil allocations that traditional public schools receive.
0: And there are a lot of people who say that all of these kinds of ideas, school choice, charter schools, are a kind of attack on the traditional public school system, that they are an effort to undermine the funding and the financing for those schools, to undermine the population of those schools in a way that compromises their outcomes, and sort of says, "Well, there's a there's a better way to do those things." What's the what's the right answer to that criticism?
1: Um, I'm not sure that there's a, a quote right answer. I think that um, the intentions behind the idea of choice and public charters, and the consequences are not always the same. So the intention is, as I said, to provide opportunities for people to choose. The consequences, however, um, particularly if charter systems are unregulated, if choice opportunities are unregulated, the consequences can undermine traditional public education. That happens by pulling children out of the traditional public schools into charters or other options that are right in the same neighborhood. So we start to have multiple school settings in the same neighborhood, distributing the children across those settings and of course then distributing the funding. The problem is that when um, children leave a building, it doesn't mean that the building's costs, the cost of instruction, actually decrease with the drop-in students. So if you have 35 students in a classroom or you have 25 students in a classroom, (laughs) you still have to teach those students and you still have to have a teacher cost. You still have to have physical building maintenance costs and so on.
0: And at the national level, we've got a secretary of education now, Betsy DeVos, who's from here in Michigan, who has for most of her life really been an advocate of school choice, of charter schools, sometimes controversial, sometimes just uh, just an advocate. I mean, somebody who really believes deeply in the concept that 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 these things introduce competition and and pressure for traditional public schools to to perform better. What's happening, though, at the national level now that she's in charge of our national public uh, school system? Not that that we have uh, a public school system at the national level, but certainly the Department of Education sets standards and provides funding for our public schools. What influence is she having over that system, uh, given her background as such an advocate for choice and charters?
1: Secretary DeVos is certainly influencing the conversation and uh, certainly is a supporter of choice and of public charters. Um, She would not deny that in any way, shape, or form. She believes in the idea of choice and articulates it, um, as I did earlier, that this is about parents and children being able to best meet their needs. Um, She is also an advocate of a kind of free market of choices. Um, So not a lot of regulation that would uh, require those different kinds of choice options to meet all of the same standards. And that does produce um, a kind of challenge, I think, to all of the people who are working in education, particularly in traditional public education, because those standards are required Mm -hmm. of traditional public schools. Mm.
0: Uh, We've also seen in the presidential race a number of Democratic candidates um, who have a controversial history of supporting charters and or school vouchers. Cory Booker, Mike Bloomberg, Elizabeth Warren, and Andrew Yang, two names that I'm not sure people would necessarily associate with those issues, all have some history of, of supporting these things. And, and in the Democratic primary, that's somewhat controversial, again, because of the, I think, connection to public schools, to public education, to public education unions, those kind of things in that, in that party.
1: Well, I think it's important to remember that the notion of choice is not inherently bad. The notion of charter schools is not inherently bad. Uh, The idea of choice, in fact, is quite compelling. I think we all want to have choices in our lives and we want, uh, as parents, to meet our children's needs. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. It's more about how choice is carried out, mm-hmm. how those options are provided, and how we ensure that choice is real. That's absolutely critical to this conversation. Does everyone have equal opportunity to choose? Mm-hmm. If I can choose, but I can't actually transport my child Get there, right. to the right, if I can choose, but the school puts in practices or policies that make it difficult for me to live up to them as a parent, let's say required uh, volunteer hours. Um, if I can choose, but um, I, I work on a schedule that doesn't allow me to be uh, fully participatory, then is that real choice? Um, there's also the issue of cost. Even though these are publicly funded, the costs are not all equal. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to think about that question when of, of whether choice is real when we think about these options. There are wonderful charter schools in our state, in our country. Um, right here in the city of Detroit, fabulous charters. Um, the last time I visited the program we talked about the James and Gracely Boggs School, mm-hmm. which is an excellent charter school started by graduates of our School of Education. So uh, we're not going to make the argument that charters are inherently bad or that choice is inherently bad. But we do need to think as a society about what it means to be able to choose yeah. and whether everyone
0: can choose equally. And, of course, we've had real difficulty here in Michigan with this question. I have always thought that it's reflective of larger issues, that it's not really about charters or choice. It's about the shortcomings that were in the system Far before, long before either of those issues was was even introduced. I mean, this idea of the inequality that exists between school districts, the number of school districts we have, which of course really encourages the kind of fiefdom thinking that that we that we have, not only as administrators and school officials but also as parents and communities Uh, all of those things i I think are magnified i guess by the the charter and choice question in a way that has made it really difficult to to figure out how to employ them in a way that that lifts public schools alongside these others
1: you're absolutely right stephen these are longstanding problems And they aren't solved necessarily by the options we have in front of us right now. And that's the big issue we should be tackling. How do we ensure that every child has the full right to education, the right to learn at at the highest levels, the right to be supported in all of their different kinds of needs, and the right ultimately, to be able to decide what kind of education
0: they want. Mm. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Elizabeth Moji. She is the Dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan. We have her here today as part of our Defining 2020 series, where we're drilling down on many of the challenges and issues that I think we will be talking about and thinking about as we prepare for the November elections and the other things that are going to happen this year. We're talking with her about education. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what questions you have about how we educate kids and how the education system works. How does it work in your city or this state or nationally? What are some of the things that you don't seem to be able to make sense of in education? What are some of the terms that you maybe struggle to define or understand? And what do you want to hear from the candidates for president about education? Uh, what would you like to know about what they would do uh, and how it would change the experience for your children? As always, the number on the phones heres three five seven seven. One zero one nine. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Um, I, I want to talk a little about Title One schools. Uh, Joe Biden, who is a leading Democratic candidate for president, talks about tripling the amount of money. That would go to Title I schools. It's, a, it's an idea that I think has not gotten as much reaction as I thought it would. That is a pretty serious investment he's talking about. Um, let's talk about what Title I is, uh, what happens in those schools that doesn't happen in, in others, and what it would mean to triple the amount of money that goes to them.
1: Well, Title I schools are schools identified as having um, a high proportion of students who have uh, particular needs, who have special needs, who um, are challenged in learning, uh, who fall below certain um, test scores or uh, achievement levels, I should say, um, and who have uh, all kinds of um, socioeconomic needs. So those schools uh, receive a set of funds that um, are designated to help those children who qualify for Title funding, uh, Title I funding in particular. There are a number of different Title programs. Mm-hmm. Title I funding is um, particularly for students who uh, qualify under those different regulations.
0: Hmm. And if you were to triple the the money that they were getting, I mean, these are schools that despite this enhanced Funding really struggle to serve the kids who come through their doors because of the challenges that they have. If you were to triple the money that they were getting, would we see better better outcomes?
1: Well, certainly, um, you know, more money does help. We know that uh, that's true. We also know that it matters how it's used, how it's distributed. Um, so it would depend in part on what regulations would be tied to that tripling of funding. Uh, it's I, I'm not exactly sure where, Senator Biden came up with the notion of tripling the funding. So I don't have uh, have any you know numbers to attach to what that would actually mean. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot more. Um, But is there a calculus that actually produced that notion of tripling? Um, Some schools are um, all school title. In in other words, so many students qualify because of um, socioeconomic status and and um, achievement levels. That, um, that the entire school is title funded and it is a way to equalize funding. We know that in our current funding systems um, around the country, uh, they vary widely. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that in our state, there's a, a formula, a very complicated formula that was brought about through Proposal A about 20 years ago um, that provides the same level of funding to all schools in theory. And we know that the same level of funding is not really what we need. That schools that are filled with students who have great need, need more funding. Mm. They need more support. And so that's where I would guess this notion of tripling the amount comes from. It actually um, makes the playing field more um, equitable. Mm. Not necessarily equal, but equitable. Mm.
0: Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. I want to go to Christy in Gross Point Woods, who has a funding-related issue she wants to talk about. Christy, welcome to the program.
2: Hi, thanks. Yes, yep. um, I'm calling in um, actually as a former educator. I used to teach in East Point, and our schools are just chronically underfunded. Um, it's been, you know, decades in Michigan that we've disinvested in education, and there's a whole host of really complicated reasons for that. Um, but what I would like to see is a graduated income tax at the state level. Um, honestly, I'd really like to tax the rich and give that money directly to schools. Mm. Our kids really need it.
0: Mm. Uh, Christy, I b- appreciate the call and the and the perspective uh Dean Moji, some of the people listening might think, wow, that's a pretty radical idea. But there are other states that are doing precisely what Christie is talking about here. We are outliers in some ways here in Michigan because we're not even talking about it.
1: Right. I I think uh, first of all I thank Christy for her call and thank you for having taught. Um, we'd love to have you come back to teaching. Um, <laughs> I, I think the question is a critical one. Um, we know that the current system is really challenging. The current system in the state of Michigan because it is, as I said, um, meant to equalize, and we don't actually need. Equal funding mm. for schools across the state. We need differential funding because schools have different levels of need. So um, the idea of who and how people should shoulder the burden. Um, is what I think Christy's getting at, whether it's a graduated income tax or, um, you know, as Biden is talking about, a a tripling of title funding or some other mechanism. We need to figure out how to make school funding more equitable. Hmm. Christy's absolutely right.
0: Yeah. Uh, Christy, again, thanks very much for the call uh, and the comments. Let's go to Tom in Northwest Detroit. Tom. Welcome to the show.
3: Well, first and foremost, Happy New Year.
0: Yeah, Happy New Year to you as well.
3: You know, I'm, I'm a former educator, and um, I, the article that Rochelle Riley wrote about children in crisis, mm-hmm. she was talking about these things called ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and talking about the toxic environments that, you know, that these children live in, and they're expected to come to school and learn. I mean, I'm to the point now, let's go ahead and build some boarding schools. Hmm. Uh, because at least you'll get those kids. Of course, there would have to be an agreement between the parent and the child that the child goes to live in this boarding place, okay? Wow. But at least you'll get them out of those toxic and dysfunctional environments for them to be able to go to school, you know, without having all of the, that drama. You understand what I'm saying? Sure, sure. No, and, Tom, I... Uh, I, I, I think they would be a lot better off, you know, um, with something like that happening,
0: hmm. uh, you know, Tom, your your comment reminds me of something that that I witnessed when I lived in Baltimore. Uh, there was an effort there to create a boarding school in Kenya that kids from Baltimore would go and live at, of course, and and learn while they were there. It was called the Baraka School, and it it produced all kinds of really interesting outcomes, Uh, some of them good, some of them not so great, but this idea of removing kids from the environment that they were in at home, which wasn't necessarily the best, uh, was was behind that. Uh, Dean that's something that we don't talk a whole lot about here. In Detroit or Michigan, but uh, again, I, I've, I've seen this happen other places. I've seen people really focus on the idea that in order to make change in young people's lives, you'd have to do more than just change what you're doing in the classroom, That that the environment that they're in has a lot to do with it.
1: Right. Well, um, I I thank Tom for the question. And, you know, I'm getting a little distressed because Tom's a former educator, Mm -hmm. too. So now we have Christy and Tom, we need you both to come back into teaching. But um, that plug aside, um, you know, I've I've actually heard a lot about boarding schools um, in in Detroit and Hmm. in Michigan. The topic comes up. Uh, every so often, and um, people raise the same kinds of concerns Tom raised—that um, there are toxic environments um, in which kids simply cannot thrive, mm-hmm. and it's very difficult then for schools to actually help children learn. I mean, that is the the goal of schools is to help them learn, and we hear a lot of teachers saying. I am now becoming you know, social worker and nurse and parent and I'm doing all these other things um, instead of actually helping children learn new ideas and mm. learn how to think. Um, so so it's, it's, a, it's a seductive argument but I think there are some dangers to the idea of boarding schools. Um, you mentioned the Baraka School, and I too have um, heard about the Baraka School, mm-hmm. and it's very impressive in many ways. But um, it also removes children from their families yes. and from their um, their cultures and their communities. And so I wonder what Tom might think about a school setting that um, was actually more of a community hub, that um, if we could come back to a way of thinking about our schools as the centers of our neighborhoods and Mm -hmm. the centers of our communities and places where everyone can come to learn, that's certainly what we're hoping to do with the Detroit uh, Cradle to Career Initiative and the school at Marygrove is to make that a space where the whole community is actually raising children, Hmm. and then everyone is benefiting from that. So that's a a little bit of a twist on the boarding school concept, and I think it can achieve the same purposes without breaking the bonds of family and community and culture.
0: Hmm. Uh, Again, Tom, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Nada in Detroit. Nada, what's on your mind?
4: Hello, and I am a former teacher, but I'm still an educator. Mm -hmm. I am the global education director for the International Institute of Metropolitan Detroit, which is celebrating 100 years in the heart of Detroit. Mm. Now, uh, the, the thing is, whenever I am hearing people talking about education in the state or the city or the county, they always talking and associating everything with the money, and I know the importance of that. But, you know, there is a very important piece missing in our education, and that is the global learning and cultural awareness Mm. programs within the schools that will help our children to think globally and act locally. Huh. With that said, you know, I don't see in all the strategic uh, makers or the people who's putting our policy for education, that piece is really missing. And I have a really a heck of a hard time convincing a principal or super attendance or whoever can hear me that... The global education is a very, very important part. It is all over the world, yeah. okay? There is a lot of educators who's working to make those children, uh, you know, citizen of the world and ambassador of peace. Mm. Uh, and we're not focusing on that at all. I mean, it's strange sometimes to think there is in Michigan cities that they didn't even have schools, like Highland Park. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know where we're going with this. not a,
0: we, Yes. Yeah. No. I appreciate. I appreciate the call and and your perspective. Uh, I'm really glad you add that to the conversation here. I want to get Dean Moji to to respond to it.
1: I agree. Nada, I think it's a a crucial point that we need to think globally, act locally, and help our children learn that they're citizens of the entire world. Um, I wonder if you've thought about how the International Baccalaureate curriculum might contribute to that work. We're uh, actually certifying teachers now to be IB teachers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I know that people have thought of International Baccalaureate as something uh, for privileged schools, but in Ann Arbor um, and in a couple of schools in Detroit, the IB curriculum is actually being used to help our young people learn how to think globally. And, and not as right, we need to think much more broadly about education and, um, you know, the variety of uh, commitments that children should have to their fellow citizens of the world. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Dean Elizabeth Moji of the University of Michigan about education and how it will unfold here in 2020. And we'll continue to take your calls. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, and we'll work into the conversation that way. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. Thank you Right today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. My guest is Elizabeth Moji. She is the Dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan, and she is here today as part of our series, a new series called Defining 2020, where we want to drill down on a lot of the challenges and issues that we are likely to face this year and talk about this year as we wind up for a presidential election in November and lots of other things that will unfold in the meantime. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. Tell us what questions you have about education in your community, in this state, maybe nationally. Tell us what you might want to hear from candidates for president. Uh, Lots of folks running for president have brought education up and ideas they have about education. What do you think of those ideas? What do you think about the idea of a president who maybe is a little more focused on education than we have seen in recent years? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Dean, I want to talk uh, about a pretty controversial measure that is going to unfold uh, this next school year here in Michigan. Michigan's third grade retention law, which says that uh, children who don't meet a certain standard in reading by third grade will not be promoted to to the fourth grade, and of course, uh, given the scores that we have on standardized tests here, there are a lot of families who will be challenged with this issue come spring. Uh, tell us about this law and whether this is the right way to kind of uh, deal with uh, this this question of how well kids are learning.
1: The third grade retention law is a really complicated law. The the again intentions and consequences. Intentions behind the law and consequences of the law uh, are two really different things. The intention uh, might seem uh, like common sense. Why would we pass children on what people have called social promotion if they can't read? We know that reading uh, skill is critical to future learning, um, but we also know that we're always both learning to read and reading to learn. Mm-hmm. So um, that why third grade uh, is, is an active question on a lot of researchers' minds. And the best answer we can give is that's when the test is given. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's not necessarily a logical divide that says if you can't read by the end of third grade, uh, that you should not be passed on the um other issue with the third grade law that we have to think through is what what does another year in third grade do for children if in fact they are retained because they aren't reading how will staying in third grade help them so a lot of reading researchers have argued Um, That instead of retention at third grade, we should be pouring our efforts into early intervention, early teaching Mm -hmm. of reading skill and early intervention as we see children start to struggle. Now, supporters of the law will say, actually, that's what the law is doing. The law is... uh, demanding that school districts, if they don't want to have a, a bolus of children who aren't um, progressing on to fourth grade, um, that they will pay attention to children's reading skill development earlier and pour intervention into those early grades. The, the challenge that we would bring back to that idea is whether there's enough funding we were talking about funding earlier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So is there enough funding to support to that, that early intervention? Sure. And what, again, are the consequences of that? So what we're seeing is a lot of um, testing, a lot of um, assessment throughout kindergarten, first and second grade as a way for school districts to know whether children are progressing as they should. Hmm. Um, so the the law is controversial It's challenging, and what's important for parents to understand is that it is um, a very complex law. There are a lot of details, and there are options for parents to um, demand a different way of assessing their children. So what we're seeing right now is that most people believe that that one test taken on one day will determine whether their children move on to fourth grade. But in fact, parents have the option to ask for different assessments, to ask for a portfolio of assessments, and to uh, push back against that retention. Mm. So that's the critical piece for parents. And I encourage everyone to you know, get on the, um, the state website, read about the retention law, And really educate themselves on their options. Yeah.
0: Uh, At the same time, you've got this suit that's unfolding still in federal court by uh, a, a group of advocates and parents who say that the extent to which children in Detroit are not taught to read. Is a violation of their constitutional rights. That seems somewhat related, really, to this third grade retention law.
1: It's absolutely related, and in fact, um, you know the the low achievement levels um, of children actually around the state on on the reading assessment are what led to uh, legislators wanting to do something about this and to really require districts to sit up, take notice, and act and, and ensure that children were learning to read. Um, the right to literacy case to which you're referring is a federal case. It is a case that is um, asking the federal government to weigh in on whether, in fact, states have a responsibility to ensure that children in their states are learning to read or learning literacy, because literacy is at the heart of all education. Uh, Believe it or not, education is not uh, a constitutional right. It's never named in the Constitution. And yet, there are, of course, several different uh, precedents that suggest that if education is compulsory, if all children are required to be educated, then that education has to be Equal, It has to um, serve the needs of all the children. And that's what the right to literacy case is arguing. Um, There are challenges to the case because, happily, the Detroit Public Schools Community District is doing an enormous amount of excellent work. Um, really trying to turn things around mm-hmm. and ensure that children are learning to read at early grades. Um, but that doesn't mean that the state's responsibility to all the children in the state um, to support them in learning to read um, is, is sort of abdicated. Mm.
0: Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Let's go to Barbara in Detroit. Barbara. What's on your mind?
2: Hello. Hi. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I would like to commend the dean from U of M for uh, discussing earlier on all of the issues and the problems and the structural uh, barriers that we as parents uh, face Mm -hmm. as it relates to educating our children. Um, I would like to see um, some type of department or initiative um, to where parents can advocate for parents. Uh, Parents get a bad rap uh, for whatever reasons and issues that they may be facing and challenges that they may be facing. Um, You have good parents who are invested in their children's education and everything that comes along with it. But you also have parents that work three jobs that it's just impossible for them to get up to their child's school for whatever reason. And if there is some type of creation of a program that can be instituted where parents advocate for other parents' children and specifically what i mean is i'll just give an example if a parent is unable to make it to the school for whatever reason you have another parent that's able to advocate for that child or that parent based Mm -hmm. off of whatever scheduling issues um to where they step in um as well to assist and help each other, and I would like to be a part of that. Um, parents have the power to do that, and you have very involved and active parents within the schools, but the barriers that they face are, 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 are really many, mm. and you know, we parents just get a bad rap, and yeah. there are um, more punitive uh, mm. issues that relates to parent blaming because of what is going on with their child in school. And if there's some way that we can create that type of initiative, I would like to be a part of it and would like to hear more from the dean as Uh, it relates to that.
0: Barbara, I I really appreciate your calling and uh, injecting that in the conversation here, Dean, Dean Moji, this idea of parents not only helping their children in school, but helping other parents. That's a really interesting idea.
1: It's a wonderful idea. And thank you, Barbara, for raising it. You know, there are a number of different advocacy groups uh, actually in the city of Detroit. Um, I don't know as many around the state, but um, one example is, you know, through Focus Hope. I know they do an enormous amount of work um, supporting parents and other community members in advocating for each other. Um, My colleague Camille Wilson at the University of Michigan works with a Detroit group of parents and young people, uh, actually, in learning all of the the research and the evidence that they might need for particular issues to be able to move agendas forward. So I think this is um, a wonderful idea. and, And it goes back to that notion of um, the, the idea of the community and the schools being a hub of community change and community agency. So I think it would be really interesting to imagine uh, spaces within schools that are places where parents can come to gather, to work together, to figure out how they can um, advance their children's education, but also other opportunities in the school. And I know what you're thinking. You'll say, oh, there's parent teacher organizations and parent groups. But I think that Barbara's talking about something. Um, different. I think um, she's talking about a way that we can reach out um, and and really bridge um, each other's needs and and help each other. I think it's an amazing um, opportunity for something like Detroit Public Schools Community District. I know that they have parent advocacy groups, and Barbara, I encourage you to um, to contact folks in Detroit Public Schools Community District and and see what you could do to be part of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Again, Barbara, thanks very much for the call uh, and the insights. As usual, Dean Moji, we are out of time before we are out of conversation, <laughs> and I feel like each time you come here, we don't have enough time to get to all the things I want to, or to all the calls that we have. We still have a full phone bank, so I'm going to make you promise that you will come back soon and continue this conversation as part of our defining 2020 series. But,
1: Absolutely, yeah. Stephen. I I would love to. It's a, it's great to be able to talk with smart people about education.
0: Yeah, and uh, it was really great to have you here, of course, today. Uh, for this initial one of those conversations. Okay, that's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. There will be another installment of our Defining 2020 series. We're going to take an in-depth look at the healthcare system, the terms and policies you'll need to know as we go into 2020. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.